Case file number 7.10. The new freak. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Amir. Hmm? Yeah? Have you ever set up an Asterix server? Mm, no. Do you know what Asterix is? Wildcard? True, but not what I was going for. Also, <laughs> wasn't it? I'm, I'm picturing now there's a, there's a cartoon, kind of like Lost Vikings, um it was like uh like a tiny little viking and his big friend who had a big belly um pants pulled up to his waist and like a hat pulled down over his eyes and i'm almost positive his name was asterix now i need to look it up while you do this intro old school unix people will call an asterix used as a as a symbol on the keyboard a splat oh i, I was kind of misremembering misre- uh the image but it was asterix and the vikings uh 2000 six and it was also like a 1989 1985 cartoon shit i'm old i'm gonna have to watch that afterwards but also <laughs> wrong um, <laughs> now what i'm talking about is the asterix voice over ip open uh open source pbx okay now it's in use i've set one up personally for a small office years ago uh for an even smaller consulting company than i work for now um, <laughs> who wanted to basically stop paying for their phone service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I learned a little bit about how, how to set one up. And one of the things that I found out at the time was that there's lots of basically embedded Asterix PBXs that you can get for like small and even medium or larger size offices. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now this is all voice over IP. And one of the ways that you can use this, this is in fact, what our, our, what my, uh, what my boss wanted to do is that you can use a voice over IP service to connect directly and forward all of your stuff in all of your phone calls into the phone service system. Okay. So now you don't need what we used to call POTS, the plain old phone system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You need smartphone, not smartphones, smartphones, but voice over IP capable phones. And there's a, a lot of complexity, somewhere between a fair bit and an enormous amount, depending on how sophisticated you want things to go, for setting up a voice over IP system. And we're going to talk about the basic components of that, but I'm going to try not to get super deep into all of the engineering that network that the network engineers that do this have to go through to 
like make a full enterprise grade system. Right. But one of the important things to pull from this is that it's pretty accessible to have a voice over IP PBX in your office with like an IT generalist putting it together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done it. Anybody can do it. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about voice over IP and the session initiation protocol. Mm, okay. The session initiation protocol is kind of the the glue that keeps that pulls all of current voice over IP together. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally designed by a handful of folks um, in 1996, Mark Handley, uh, Henning Schulrezin. I should have practiced that one before. The, <laughs> before the German German name? It looks like a a, a German name. S C H U L Z R I N N E. Schulzrein. Okay. So if you happen to be listening, we really tried to get the name right. <laughs> Eve Schuler, maybe even Schuler, and uh, Jonathan Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. And so they proposed this originally in 1996. Um, this is an EITF standard, and it was published as a standard in uh, as RFC 2543 uh, in 1999. Okay. After some discovery of some issues with it, it was replaced by RFC 3261 and a few others, but that that's kind of the big one for, for the calling thing. Um, the reason we needed it is that there was actually some voice over IP stuff that was happening before that, um, but it was essentially created by the telecommunications industry. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think that we've we've talked about a lot is there's a lot to having an open standard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The open standard and all the other protocols we've discussed was really important to their adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So other telecommunication standards that were in that were in use back then and are sometimes in use to uh, that are still in use in certain implementations today are H323. And I believe that the uh, that there is a like H235 V2 and a few other things, but there is all in those H dot protocols. Um, in fact, I remember like one of the very first things, one of the very first places I did any network engineering, we were trying to get a PICTEL system working, uh, over IP using H323. Mm, okay. And that was really cool, except that it completely crushed our network. <laughs> Whoops. Well, it would resolve, it would, uh, reserve a 64 bit B channel. And this is kind of relevant to to SIP and everything. It will reserve a 64-bit kilobit channel, um, which is a B channel in telecommunications terms, or two of them, um, depending on your your whether or not you had video, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and our frame relay lines ranged in size from about 128 kilobit per second kbps and uh, and 512 kbps for the bigger offices. That's <laughs> an office-wide frame relay line. So. Mm-hmm. One call would take up half the bandwidth for one of the smaller offices. And we knew that when we did our test, Mm -hmm. but we did our test and it significantly impacted that work. Some of the upside of the the SIP systems is they're more flexible about the bandwidth they use. They won't, they're not like, no, I have to use this B channels worth of, worth of bandwidth or Mm -hmm. this, this two B channels worth of bandwidth. Incidentally, this is why ISDN lines are the speeds that they are. <laughs> those are B channels. Right. So 
this being an IP protocol is complicated. Makes sense. Yeah. So SIP itself has a lot of similarities in kind of the structure of the headers and stuff like that. And I'm not going to go into like all the things in the structure of the header, but it's similar to HTTP and like FTP before it, mm -hmm. where you have a host header with some with some information, and then you have like a directive and some call information. It's like right, right. I'm this, I'm inviting this person, this endpoint that or the, this entity to call me. Mm -hmm. Now that invite is handled by the proxy for that entity. So if you're calling me from NASA to my little consulting company, let's say, mm -hmm. you would send an invite to your proxy, which would then send an invite to my proxy, which would then mm -hmm. send an invite to me. Okay. Yeah, and then that causes some trying and ringing. And we use that to decide on the media session mm -hmm. that we actually do our transit of voice. I like, I like the, what you described is kind of like when you're in a fight with like your friend when you're young. And so you tell like your, your other friend to tell your other friend to tell <laughs> the, the main friend. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just the connection negotiation. Now, SIP itself by standard is not encrypted. Okay. And one of the important parts of the reason that they went, that they revised the RFC in 2002 to, to 32 61 was that in the original one they used uh, http basic off in clear text and it became forcible even if you didn't have capture mm -hmm. um so there have been security problems basically from the beginning and they've been trying to deal with them basically from the beginning <laughs> um now if in this case your system has a internet routable IP address and my system has an internet routable IP address. Let's say mm. we're in the V6 network or we're just, you know, online. Right. Direct. AOL. Yeah. Well, you and I would make a connection. Mm -hmm. And we make a connection in a real-time transport protocol. Okay. Now, this is unencrypted. The Or the original version is unencrypted. Mm. Um, and it can use... UDP, TCP, or technically stream control transmission protocol, uh, SCTP. Okay. Now, SCTP was defined in RFC 9260, which is kind of a high number. And that's because it was published in June of, 20, of 2022. Oh, shit. Okay. Right. Now, published means that it's gone through the entire request for comment period. So, mm -hmm. so it's been... The typical RFC, and I didn't go through all of the, the previous versions because I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> but RFCs may go through a few years of, you know, proposed to in comment to pre-publish to publish. Mm -hmm. So it's been around for a few years. Um, so like the, the basic idea of it, the standard to which you might conform have been around for a few years. And incidentally, I have definitely experienced protocols that were still in the for comment period that were being implemented. Right, right. Like, sometimes the comments aren't coming very fast and folks just say we need it and they implement on the standard. Right. It definitely happens. Um, although the EITF or the IETF, I'm sorry, um, has at least from in my experience gotten a lot better about that in like the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. But 
again, it's happened. Um, but because it's such a new protocol, I don't remember recall seeing this on my on any of the networks I work on, and I don't think that it's in common use right now. Um, right. Like, just not a bunch of stuff uh, supports it. And so we're talking about this, like voice over IP between things within the same domain that am not Windows domain, but it kind of can be. Um, but they're making calls through their through one proxy, right? Mm -hmm. You're more likely to see that kind of thing in kind of that homogenous enterprise. The call from one proxy to another, that's when that compatibility stuff becomes more important. Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, this the stream control transmission protocol has some of the good points of UDP and some of the good points of TCP. Um, there's still some aspects of reliable transmission, but it's a little bit better at dealing with multipath communication. Hmm, okay. So, like I said, traffic is in the clear. The The original version of protocol, the traffic is in the clear. There is a SIPS and an RTPS protocol mm -hmm. currently. Now I'm all confused because I don't because I don't remember if it's RTPS or or SRTP. I feel and like I, the general naming convention is always the S first. It but is, but not always. In yeah. fact, there are some stupid examples. And, yeah. I mean, just for fun, FTPS is the secure version of FTP because SFTP is what? Isn't that that's just FTP over uh, SSH, right? More or less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I realized after I said that HTTPS um, spring immediately to mine. So there is yeah. no like real standard. There is a convention, but yeah. that convention sometimes lets weirdos in. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so there are TLS versions of those protocols. Right. Um, you could make the argument. So there's a there's a term that I use that isn't a real word, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's a term that I use called mm -hmm. locality. Uh, and what I refer to that is when you've got two things and you're trying to observe traffic between the two of them, mm -hmm. you need to have the correct network locality to observe the traffic. Right, right. So that, that I mean, use the word in the sentence, basically means where, not a, your physical location, but your, but, but your, your, place in relationship to the path of the data. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if you don't have network locality, you can't observe the traffic. Right. Now, if you're doing that through a wireless network, getting network locality is different than if you're doing it through a wired network, if wired all the way through, then you need to be basically the service provider to, to be in between. But we'll mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. Um, but unless you're doing the the so to go back to hey we're both not on the real internet we're going through a NAT you're going through a NAT on your side I'm going through right. a NAT on my side how do we connect Th this is generally a function of the same box or can be a function of the same box as the connection proxy mm -hmm. that you're sending those invites to but it's a different function where the proxy server or a session can, uh, 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 border connection will broker the connection and act as a proxy in between. Okay. Now, when you're doing that, it's link encryption at each hop of the proxy. So when mm -hmm. you go out to your proxy to go out, because you don't have a real IP address, right? the, the encrypted connection is between you and the proxy. And then the connection between 
your proxy and my proxy, that's encrypted, but not using the same encrypted encryption session. And then likewise with my connect, my proxy connection, my connection to my proxy. So anybody in the middle that is a broker in the middle mm -hmm. is going to be able to read the traffic in the middle. Right. Like that's one of the limitations of the nature of it, of the encryption of SIP. And that's essentially from, in my opinion, that is an inherent uh, weakness of the, of the way that the protocol works. The only way you're going to get around that is if the world is filled with IPv6 purists, every endpoint device has a real internet address that is connectable on uh, uh, using the real-time transport protocol. Right, right. Uh, which is not going to be a world I think that we're going to end up living in. <laughs> no, no. Um, but like, if you don't have that, this is what you have. Hmm. Um, so before I start talking about like broad in general, I want to talk about an early SIP user uh, named uh, uh, Michael Smith, who's in mm -hmm. Ipswich, Massachusetts. Um, this is reported on uh, in 2012 by the uh, the Salem News. Mm -hmm. So Michael Smith ran a small manufacturing firm and every month usually spends about $700 in his phone bill. Well, he basically got a bill that amounted to about $900,000. Okay. For a, less than a week's worth of calls. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> So he had a SIP switch, uh, mm -hmm. a, a PBX switch, um, and folks had like a dial-in mechanism to be able to use that phone switch. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody broke into that mm -hmm. and was making calls to Somalia from them. Nice. Now, in order to do that, he didn't actually have AT&T service who were the ones that were suing him for $1.5 million after, you know, him refusing to pay. <laughs> because what was happening was those folks were dialing out and then using a call redirecting service, a, a, a 1010 prepaid phone system. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing was that after a weekend and a pileup of about a quarter million dollars worth of, worth of uh, calls, mm -hmm. um, they called in and basically had Verizon shut down the ability, the company's ability to make international calls, but they hadn't actually fixed the PBX. Oh, so okay. Calls continued for another four days. Um, and now everybody believes that the calls were fraudulent, but he was still on the hook for it. They mm. they were continuing to sue him and really, really put the screws to him until they finally basically wrote it off. Right. It, that like that's a real world example of some of the stuff I'm going to mention that are the common like voice over IP frauds, the mm -hmm. voice over IP problems. The actual SIP protocol has, can be enumerated and, and there's some stuff real specifically related to that, but the actual fraud stuff, there's PBX hacking, which is the instance that I'm just talking, that I just talked about right. where, where they get control of the PBX and then they'll use that for using various scams to basically make local calls with it. Mm -hmm. One way is what's referred to is 
international revenue share fraud, okay. which is which is basically you're a cell, you're a phone service and you're a bad guy and bad guy and I'm using air quotes heavily. Uh, <laughs> and what you're doing is you're charging the normal international rate, but instead of using the normal international calling system, you tunnel all of that traffic over voice over IP to the local network. Mm -hmm. And then you have an endpoint at the local network that is making the calls out for you. Okay. Now, this is considered fraud by the telecommunications folks because you're basically charging them for international calls, but they're not actually making them and they're not, and you're not paying the essentially the tax and toll charges related to that. Oh, okay. So the international phone system is essentially losing expected revenue and the government's losing taxation no mm -hmm. now i think that this is one of those things that's a little dumb <laughs> <laughs> because like the point of this kind of technology of like this persistent internet technology is to drive down the cost of communications like that's mm -hmm. that's one of the explicit you know even if you're on that on my three-legged stool of government community and the corporate interest side of things Part of the reason the corporate interest and government side of things wanted the internet was to drive down the cost of communications mm -hmm. because that's an economic multiplier. And I think that we could all agree that that's definitely had an effect. Right. Yeah. So for one of those explicit goals, but the rest of the telecommunications industry hasn't completely caught up to this idea. Mm -hmm. They're talking out of both sides of their mouths because they're the ones all they're, on a lot of cases they're the ones also selling a voice over ip service <laughs> right <laughs> but in some cases and actually a chunk of, a decent chunk of cases they're the service at the at the local end is using things like pirated pbx's local pbx's mm -hmm. or fraudulent uh or stolen or fraud or otherwise fraudulently only obtained like calling card numbers. So you do voice over IP and then you call out to the local phone service using service that was essentially stolen. Mm, okay. And then, and this is the part that I have a problem with is essential is the person who paid it paid the full price. Yeah. What should be happening is essentially it should be all above board and it should be a competitive system that the prices should be driven down to the consumer and the telecommunications industry shouldn't call this fraud and mm -hmm. if it was all happening above board, all of the really scummy parts of this, of them using uh, stolen service, might, right, might right. actually get some law enforcement attention. Mm -hmm. I'm the first to admit there's parts of this that makes that make a, that, that make a lot of sense from a "Hey, everybody, play fair," and there's parts of this that don't. Right. Right. Yeah. So another thing is called uh, wangiri, uh, which is a Japanese term for it's, it's a missed call campaign, literally, uh, Wenguri uh, translates to one one and cut, or one ring and cut. And you might have gotten one, some of these, I definitely have, where all, you'll get a one ring call to your phone mm -hmm. uh, from maybe an international number. And what they're counting on is that some people will call back. Oh, and when okay. they call back, they get an adult-oriented recording or something like that. Mm -hmm. like a phone line kind of thing right and then they get charged a an exorbitant toll charge for that interesting jokes on them because i hate talking on the phone with anyone even family so i never call back <laughs> i'm shocked that we managed to get this podcast together 
Because most of it was done over email and text. I don't think our editor can work with that. <laughs> um, there's call hijacking, uh, where some calls from network A, which should go to network C, are being sent to network B, which end at a announcement server playing a recorded message. And they charge a toll charge for that, that they basically make all money on. Mm. There's what's called domestic fraud, which basically people routing your calls through upgraded service. Mm, okay. Um, so you VoIP in, they send it through a premium line that they control, and then it comes out. Mm. And then you get charged for the service that you'd never really needed. All right. Hmm. There's some FCC regulation termina uh, termination fee chicanery that, that that this has been observed companies indulging in to to inflate their 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 prices. This is not entirely dissimilar from the thing that banks were accused of. Well, banks did uh, back in back in like the credit crunch days, um, right? 2006 to 2008, where they'd order your transactions smallest to biggest. Uh, so that if you overdrew, you you overdrew multiple as many times as possible. In addition, there's actual attacks against the systems themselves, and mm -hmm. this is kind of what law enforcement uses when they're trying to replicate wiretaps. Right. They can use various tricks that we've discussed before about like DNS cache poisoning and stuff like that to uh, become a proxy PVX in the middle. Mm -hmm. And like we discussed before. Even without downgrading the service from the TLS version, if you're a proxy in the middle, link encryption on either side, you get to see it and you get to see it or hear it right. in between. Hmm. And again, that's very likely to be the situation when everybody's not within the same network. Right. Yeah, within, yeah. The, within this. I mean, when I think of this, I actually think of this on the enterprise level of everybody being within within kind of an enterprise and having an enterprise gateway. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not the case because from, I think, 3G on, LTE definitely uses um, SIP-based voice over IP or a version of it, a specialized version of it for all of your actual communication. That's oh, okay. happening. Yeah. So if you don't have a phone that's using CDMA, pretty much all of your phone calls are digital. And the way that they become digital is through a version of voice over IP. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to get to a point in the not too, too distant future. And again, this is one of those things that telecommunications companies are probably going to uh, to resist as long as possible because of the rates that they can charge of right. direct voice VoIP to VoIP calling. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. If at any of the conferences you've ever been, you've seen NinjaTel. No, I don't think so. So they basically have smartphones that only have internet service and mm -hmm. phone calling through them works exactly that way. They use what calling. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, um, other attacks on the SIP service itself. There's some re-registration stuff where, where you can basically forge an identity within a proxy. Mm -hmm. If there's no security on the, uh, on, on the directory itself, you can enumerate the directory because it's an LDAP directory. Oh, okay. But uh, kind of the most, the things you need to worry the most about generally is usually connection floods to your SIP gateway. Now, there mm -hmm. have been in the past 
various voiceover IP PBXs that have been vulnerable to like buffer overflows in the SIP header, mm -hmm, right. in, the, in, in the SIP traffic that will allow them to run remote code on the PBX. Right. Yeah. Um, and and those, because this is a, a an internet facing service, is exploitable. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm used to seeing probes like probes for SIP endpoints quite a lot on my network boundary. Mm. They all get dropped on the floor pretty much, but right, most yeah, of them do. Uh, but like one of the things that our firewall does, we use Palo Alto, I've probably said this before at my main network, is aware enough of SIP and the attacks for SIP that it will crush and rate limit that stuff if you configure it that way. Mm. And those are kind of the best defenses against those kind of, those particular kinds of uh, flood attacks. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, the I guess the, the last thing on the list of, of attacks to watch out for, this was listed in a few different places I, I saw in my research. I didn't, I wasn't able to find a real world attack that did this, but it's it's absolutely possible mm -hmm. at the very least. I mean, I think we talked about smart meters getting Trojan binaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same kind of thing. If you can distribute to endpoints, to voice over IP phones, binaries, then you could maybe jump through them mm -hmm. or or listen in on call. Like all of that stuff is possible. Well, listening right. in on calls in, in something that is very similar, would be similar to a keylogger. And again, we talked about a little bit of this in the IoT because um, this is just another IoT kind of thing. Uh, being able to use that as a hop through endpoint mm -hmm. or being able to do lateral movement from the, the phone itself, scans right. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the next thing I kind of want to talk about, it's kind of one of the larger issues with voice over IP stuff. This is coming from a press release in February uh, 2022 from the Justice Department. Okay. The press release headline is multiple India-based call centers and their directors uh, indicted for perpetuating phone scams affecting thousands of Americans. Hmm, really? Yeah. So what they were doing was they had these big robocall and call center setups in India. Mm -hmm. And they were using voice over IP to tunnel that traffic over and using all of the dirty tricks between buying service from shady folks to pirating service and doing various service frauds to make calls through voice over IP coming from those, at, those phone numbers mm -hmm. uh, to people. Um, so it was normal phone scam stuff that, that's been happening for years, but the InfoSec component of it is that they were using voice over IP to forward that traffic from India. So they offshored our fraud. Right, um, right. <laughs> you thought it was only happening to tech workers, but no. Ah. Our con men are being put out of business. Damn it. Like these were mostly your standard, your standard scams, at, uh, at least this particular indictment. Um, I actually can't wait for the indictment about the phone, uh, about the auto insurance. What is that one? This is potentially off topic, mm -hmm. but last year, very end of last year, mm -hmm. um, 2020, in the very end of 2022, the Federal Trade Commission came down super hard on these basically robocall kind calls for, say, hey, your car, your car uh, warranty oh, yeah. is about to expire. Mm -hmm. It was alleged that it was a mob organized um, that that there was a, that it was a mob organized uh, fraud system, okay. um, and 
a small number of actors was found to be the source of the vast majority of the of this kind of traffic. Interesting. Now, I think, and I couldn't find any information on it, but I'll admit I didn't look that hard because uh, I didn't think there would be any information yet. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to get large groups of phone numbers in order to perpetuate the scam and keep going right. with uh, with lots of phone numbers. And I know I personally received phone phone calls about that stuff from multiple area codes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember getting um, done. But someone I know has a uh, has a phone that they kept from when they moved from New England, mm -hmm. and they don't know anybody up there anymore. Right. Yeah. 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 So they'll get calls that were local to their phone number, but but they knew immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if that operation was functionally similar to this operation. Uh, so like that kind of thing, voice over IP, because the cost of getting new phone numbers and getting caught with the phone service that is that you're doing the fraud from mm -hmm. is so much lower now because you can hack more phone numbers, right? you can move service. All of that makes the cost of having large scale phone-based phone fraud, um, phone-based co uh, competence schemes, much lower. So, mm -hmm. I mean, welcome to the modern world. We made it, <laughs> put it on the internet and we supersized it. Hell yeah. Um, and in a related thing, in March uh, 2020, the FTC warned, uh, this is the Federal Trade Commission press release headline, the FTC warns nine voice over IP providers and other companies against assisting and facilitating illegal coronavirus related telemarketing calls. Uh -huh. Generally speaking, this was a this this was a similar kind of fraud, except that basically the providers were in on it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they were misrepresenting the seller telemarketer's affiliation with a government agency, transmitting false deceptive caller ID numbers. Um, they were, you know, making actual statements about that, which is illegal to impersonate a federal officer. But yeah. that's not the te telecommunication issue. Uh, and they were, and you know, sin among sins, they were initiating telemarketing calls to consumers whose phone numbers are on the Do Not Call registry. <laughs> Son of. Uh, I guess my point being is that we've caught some of these things that are that are pretty big. Um, but my experience has been, and I think yours has been too, that they don't crack down on this fast. No. I mean, right now, I'm getting not very many calls that I don't want to answer. But that was not the case a year ago. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Like, I think I didn't really notice the sudden mm -hmm. droppage of calls but like yeah it's been it's been a stark drop of um random calls i believe that's going to be an ebb and flow kind of thing i don't believe that this is a solved problem i am I very much like seeing the justice department and the federal trade commission putting their um putting a lot of effort into this mm -hmm. but i haven't seen any reports from them uh any releases about them getting significantly better at combating this the, uh, this kind of activity. Right. I guess it's worth saying that between the POT system, the, the, the PSTD, I, 
forget what that stands for, but I think that's the the acronym for the regular phone system and mm -hmm. the VoIP system. Um, there are new protocols called uh, uh, Shaken and Stir, which are which create validated caller ID information. Okay, interesting. Uh, the protocols were created, I think, five ish years ago, or at least re released as 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 a, as a standard five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going from memory here, so don't quote me. Uh, but it was only it was last year that the administration started saying for all of basically the smaller telecommunications companies that were lagging behind that you absolutely had to do it or that we're going to make your life more difficult right, um, right. a lot more difficult and and this is all telecommunication stuff so there is a non-trivial amount of federal regulation attached to it mm -hmm. yeah yeah so like there's a stick there i just don't remember exactly what the what 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 it was um but those small providers were one of the refuges for the people at least in the gray end of the market mm -hmm. so that may help as well but i'm i'm still not confident um until i see somebody saying yeah and this is how we killed it for good um, right, yeah, yeah. that this isn't going to come back because it's one of those things um i believe that in the forward for applied cryptography that you know it's not security if you stopped it as long as you keep your method secret mm -hmm. it it's security when you can publish exactly what you're doing. You yeah, give yeah. somebody an example box and they still can't break it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I haven't personally seen enough of that for me to say, yeah, you guys just got it licked. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that you could make quite a lot of progress and maybe indeed this is how they did it, doing you know big data type data analysis mm -hmm. of like frequency of calls and of outgoing calls versus incoming calls for various pools of service and that kind of thing um, could very well be how they identify these things. And so they can do it much more quickly than they could before. But again, that's just me kind of spitballing. I have no idea that that's how yeah. they do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The last thing I have here is actually kind of weird. It's not an infosec problem, but I I ran it across it when I was doing the, my, my reading, and I wanted to share it as, as kind of my, my last little story about voice over IP. Um, this is called in the uh, Boston University School of Law paper, the Italian job. So this would make <laughs> it the second Italian job. We This is the sequel Italian job, I guess, um, mm -hmm. within our podcast. Right, right. This one also starring Marky Mark. Yeah, but... You listeners just picked up the original Italian job is one of my favorite episodes to do for the entire thing. And that's, uh, <laughs> I believe, uh, season one, episode five. Mm, yeah, it might be, yeah, yeah, it was really, it was, it was in season one. Um, and it's, it's a cool story. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, yeah, it was cool. This is what they call missing trader intra community fraud. Okay. And what it is, is an attempt to, well, I mean, they succeeded for, for, for at least a few years, get out of paying the VAT tax for telecommunication services. Hmm, okay. Now, the mob was associated with this, and a significant part of the indictment had to do with money laundering. So, like, hmm. you got your fraud, my money laundering, I got, you got my, your money laundering and my fraud. Hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So... I'm actually going to try and read from this school of law paper about how the fraud was done. Um, there's two parts. There's the money laundering part, which we're not going to get into. And then there's the phone card part, which I'm going to 
read off and get basically my understanding of what that was. Mm -hmm. Okay. This phone card, and I quote, this phone call, phone card fraud begins within the United States where two companies, Global uh, Telephone Services, LLC, and Worldwide Telecommunication Services, LLC, sell to Telefox, uh, SRL, an Italian company, the rights to phone cards. These cards give a purchaser the right to access for a limited time digi to digital content that was to be made available over the internet to the end user. Telefox is required to pay to reverse charge the Italian VAT of 20%. Telefox will be a missing trader and will not file the required returns. Okay. So end quote. What this means is that there's US telecommunications companies and they sell they sell a bunch of, of, of basically phone card codes. Okay. Mm -hmm. To this Italian company, Telefox. Right. And Telefox pays the US companies, but does not pay the Italian government the value added tax. Okay. All right. So the next thing is, and to return to quoting, Telefox in turn sells these rights to either of two Italian companies in the CMC group. The, uh, and the CNC group subcontracts to two other companies, Gaff Plastics Division and Print Media, uh, which is in um, Verres, Italy, to produce the cards. The cards are never made. But as a domestic sale of services, Telefox to the CMC group, 20% VAT, VAT tax is collected on resale. So Telefox takes the 20% VAT tax it gets paid and pockets it. Mm -hmm. okay. This is a means of creating money laundering. And the CMC group then resells the rights another time, which are supposedly embedded in actual cards, to another Italian company, Fastweb Spa. Fastweb Spa pays the Italian VAT tax on this transaction and then allegedly exports these cards to the Kentworthy group uh, in the UK. Fastweb is the first entity to make a profit on these sales of, of the phone cards. Everything else is done at cost, and they make a 7% profit. Mm -hmm. Fastweb records a 70, uh, 20% Italian VAT on its purchases and then zero rates the sale of the phone cards to the UK. Fastweb does not file the refund tax because it is VAT positive. So this is just chicanery around how VAT accounting works, which is okay. apparently insane. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah. Like in this is they basically had this big shell game of different companies. Right. And they all pay the VAT tax except for the one at the beginning. Right basically pockets it they make a seven percent there's a seven percent profit made here and apparently the service is used but the means of going through all of these different entities and sorry the final resale of the cars is made outside of the eu either to fulcrum trading us in reno nevada or of the novelist uh international limited in, in um uh, the british virgin islands these transactions are zero rated and completely offset for the uk reverse charge purchase from fat from FastWeb. Um, so all this money goes through this huge shell game through all kinds of international transactions, basically to make a small profit and pocket the VAT and launder a bunch of money in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of a way to just move around a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, and the government, apparently the Italian government went after this by, ba by essentially saying, we want our tax, even if they were more concerned with money laundering, <laughs> uh, like getting Capone on tax evasion. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. All of this was done between 2003 and 2006. And 
the paper I'm reading from was published in 2010. Um, the interesting thing from the opening of this was, was that um, apparently another part of the University of Law had speculated that this might be a way of do of doing this this uh this VAT tax evasion type of uh, missing trader operation. Mm -hmm. Um and then it's like, oh, well, we have an example like immediately after they, <laughs> they published the thing. But um I thought it was interesting the voice over IP service was used in this way. From my reading around this, this is actually a non-trivial component of voice of stuff that is attributed under the heading of voice over IP fraud, mm -hmm. even though it has basically nothing to do with the infosec involved. Right. I guess I say this um, from our point of view, just because we're not talking about attacks and inv invasions and stuff, service fraud of various kinds, various aspects of of order fraud you know somebody makes an order th through a company and then they mark up the price because there's there's a sweetheart deal mm -hmm. between the broker and the company that you're uh that you're working for as a security entity and right. then they get market price and there's a huge markup in there that kind of fraud i believe is also under the umbrella of information security mm -hmm. yeah that we can't catch it without the right records. Right, yeah. I mean, not all, no, there aren't a lot of folks that have both InfoSec expertise and accounting expertise. <laughs> yeah. But the forensics to get them that information is part of the umbrella of what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's just something to keep in mind that when we're talking about like having to deal with Sarbanes-Oxley regulation, those are the reasons for it. Right, yeah. Having that data, preserving it, making sure that it's not destroyed because somebody doesn't want to get caught for fraud <laughs> is part of our job. It's a, it, like I feel like our responsibility is not just to folks that are paying us. It's also to the 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 laws and regulations that we all live under, but even in a kind of more self-interested way, in kind of a, a royal we kind of way. Mm -hmm. Some of the reasons we have our jobs is because these regulations exist. Right. Yeah. They're good generally for the countries that we that we live and work in because the less fraud in the system, the more efficient an economy is. And I'm not going to get into the economics about it. And we're part of that. Yeah. And I, I think we, I think that we should keep that in mind at the various points where we interact with things that might uncover or prove this kind of fraud. Mm-hmm. And and we're taking advantage of the grand world of voice over IP to record this episode. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.